Johnson, nowhere to go. Steps up. He's going to try to keep it. He's on the five. Lowers the shoulder. And he takes it in. What a run by Deshaun Watson. Watson buys some time. Throws to the end zone, and it's caught. Kiki QT. Cam is sacked. Hit hard by Justin Reed. And his pass is batted down. J.J. Watt. That's the fourth time today. And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast, talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles. And we have a win to talk about this week, a 27-20 victory against the Patriots as the roof was open in NRG Stadium and was what was probably the most complete performance on both sides of the ball. And Houston moved to 3-7. and seven. Joining me this week to talk this one over uh, and also a trip to Detroit for the Turkey Day kickoff of the triple header is Mike Meltzer. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. It's all right. After a win. Um, it feels Always like after a win. And a win not against the Jaguars. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And even though it's not the same Patriots team, I think there is something to the idea that it's still the uniforms, it's still Belichick, and even though they're not that good this season, there's, there's no Tom Brady. It's still nice, especially after what we've gone through the last 10 years, of beating the Patriots and beating Belichick. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's certainly yeah, it's certainly good to just kind of feel like we've beaten a, a bona fide NFL team um, this year, which I don't think the Jags necessarily are in their attempts to <laughs> yeah. tank, or, or their perceived attempts to tank. Obviously, they're not doing that by the rule book, but but um, before the game, Mike, and I think we've got to win this week, so we'll probably actually have more to talk about the game than we have in previous. But this continually seems to be a, a revolving door of information pre-game, which is an odd time to release stories. But ESPN continues to peddle these stories every week now, um, and obviously the protagonist most of the time is is Jack Easterby. Now, like there is obviously a clear vitriol from many of the fan base and onlookers uh, for his position. Yes. For, for my point of view, him still being there absolves of, of the blame that he should take his fair share in and he seems to have disappeared. Now, we most of us only see the bubbles at the surface. What do you think is bubbling below the surface to make this sort of a regular occurrence every week now? Well, it is a little weird that, that, that Cal McNair has, on numerous occasions, had to clarify that, hey, Jack Easterby is not going to be the GM. That's a little weird to me in that, I mean, it's good because I don't think anybody wants him to be the GM, but it's a little odd that the owners had to make that clarification numerous times about one of the most important people in football operations in his building. Uh, I just think that's it, it. it's telling that they've had to clarify it now uh, numerous times. I know that there's been people floating on a theory that maybe what makes the most sense is that the Texans have a pretty good idea of who, where they're going with their next general manager. And if that guy's on board with Jack Easterby remaining in the organization, then that's the kind of situation that would make it make sense to where you could say, hey, Jack's not going to be the GM. He's going to be in the organization and we're hiring a GM. If you have a pretty good idea of where you want to go with the GM, then you can say all of those things and it be true. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah uh, it's interesting because I think obviously the message has obviously got through to them now and I, I posted a, an open letter to Cal last week and, and I emailed it to him and, and a day later he came out with 
the not that I'm saying he read it. I'm not that deluded, but I think that he. I think you made the cause. I I think you're the guy. <laughs> Kyle Redding was like, listen, I, I got I got people in England who want to who want to figure out what, what's going on. We, I, I need to clarify this. Let me call up John McLean and Adam Schefter. And but I I just thought it was yeah. But you, you said just but the, the the biggest thing I took from it um, was that the timing of it that he had a direct quote to you know one of these insiders in inverted commas and that's not typical behavior and then the day prior when jamie roots is pushing his crass book that he's uh, he's brought out about monetizing fans um despite a on a, a lacking <laughs> on-field product yeah. he also went out his way to mention it as well when he was asked by a season ticket holder about his role so i think the message has obviously hit them and i think it must have hit easterby as well because he's just disappeared you know from the public eye at this point yep yeah, it's it's very strange. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. Um, I'm trying to think what else what else to add. It's just such a strange situation. I I think maybe what led to Cal clarifying was the fact that a few days earlier there was the report by Ian Rapport that hey maybe Romeo Crennel is going to stay on in 2021 as the head coach, which I do not think is a possibility whatsoever. And a lot of people took that report and said, well, this is a way for Jack Easterby to remain the GM, which he is on an interim basis. So I think maybe those reports led the organization to feel like, hey, we need to clarify this as we move forward in this season. Yeah, because that that report from uh, Ian Rappaport, and I talked about that with Brandon Scott last week, that it just seemed out of kilter and it just seemed oh, yeah. a strange report. So I think that obviously came from outside. Now you can tell that by this week reading between the lines. This is obviously their attempt to put out their side of the story because I think that the, the when you know when when fans are turning up to games with signs to say fire a guy who's not anything near the playing staff or the coaching staff, I think that that you know that just shows you the the level of uh of, of credence that this guy, you know, holds within the fan base. But it just seems, a str- as you said, I just think it's a really strange position to be in, that you know everybody connected to the team and wants this team to do well and as a vested interest team wants this guy gone. But yet they're coming out saying, well, actually, you know, we see him playing a role. But the, I think what's, what Cal seems to do, I think his communication is terrible at times because... You know, the fact that there was a conflicting report with John McLean and then Adam Schefter, you know, within minutes of one another, I think that's where he lets himself down at times because he's, you know, there was one, you know, the one in the article in the Chronicle came out and said that'll be up to the general manager to, to decide his fate, which we yeah. all hope is true because that's the, like the most logical common sense kind of approach because he should be, you know, running the show at that point, whoever that might be. Um, and then the second one said, you know, and then there's other reports saying that he's in, involved in it. So it, it's... It's a, I think there's not many teams that could achieve this sort of set of confusion with somebody so, you know, in, in theory, vital to its operation. Yeah, and this is what happens when you don't fully clean house, when you fire Bill O'Brien, but you don't fire Jack Easterby. Um, I mean, I think there's been I, – I understand that when I talk to people, they say, well, Cal's not comfortable talking to the media, certainly not in an open microphone kind of situation – and my response is that, listen, if you're a billionaire and you're running a company like the Texans, which it's not publicly traded, but it's like a community, it's, it's, a, it's a big community thing in, in a big city, like you have to be able to talk to the media. Like that, that to me is just, that's the way it is. So 
and, and Cal's been training the, for this for a long time. And I'm sure they do trainings on talking to reporters and doing things like that. Um, and nobody's really fully explained to the fan base or the media what the exact value of Jack Easterby is. Like just on a fundamental level, why is Jack Easterby employed? Because with other guys, you can say, well, they're employed for this reason or for that reason. And even if you don't like them being there, at least you can find a way to explain it in a way that makes sense. With Easterby, nobody sat down and said, okay, this is why the Texans felt the need to hire him to begin with from New England. And this is why he's in his role now. And this is why he's going to remain in the future. Like, that has not really been fully explained to the fan base. I mean, ultimately, uh, I, I don't like the situation. And I've said this on the podcast I do with Landry Locker and Cody Stutes, which comes out usually every Monday night and Tuesday morning. Um, I, I do not like the situation. If it were me running the show, Jack Easterby would not be part of my, my organization. But I guess I'm in a spot where, like, beggars can't be choosers. And ultimately, the Texans will hire a GM and they will hire a head coach. And I think two months from now – people will be much more optimistic because I think those guys, like I think from a coaching standpoint, there, there are a lot of good candidates out there. I think they'll end up with one of them. And then from, from a GM standpoint, as long as they hire a GM who is a football guy, which is not hard to do, then they will automatically be in a much better situation than they have been from June, 2019 to basically now. Yeah. And I think the, the fact that, you know, it's, the position he's in and the the level of, of you know complete rejection that anybody has the fact that his name comes up, I think just shows you how badly it's been run that you're saying exactly you need to just, you know, we talked about this last week, draining the swamp, starting again, you know, admitting <laughs> you were wrong in every facet of the last eighteen months. We gave power to the wrong people. And that was why I put in the letter to Cal. I said you've got two fundamental problems at the minute. You've had an eighteen month spell where you've given people the autonomy to make decisions they were not qualified for or nor had the experience for. And then say and then secondly, you've got a growing disconnect with the fan base because I think you know you can see that even the limited amount of tickets that you can sell to enter NRG Stadium on a Sunday, they're not even selling those. So I think that you know I think the and he'll see that and that you know that I doubt that'll be um you know Jamie Roots talked about that as well. But I think they need to you know, I think that when you've got a crisis, you know, whether it's any any sort of company, and this is a, a multi-billion-dollar business we're talking about here, you need to publicly apologise, and I don't think they've done that yet. And there needs to be the the tipping point. But the tipping point with this is, is it, and it's similar to kind of politics in the sense you live and die in the in the, uh, in the court of public opinion. That if you win win football games and this team starts the season five and zero next year, I don't think anybody will really care. But um, as as such as the business. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens. I do think the good thing is that there are a lot of good head coaching candidates out there. And from a GM standpoint, like you can't really say this enough. The Texans made Bill O'Brien the GM, which made no sense. He was not qualified for the job. Uh, their current interim GM, Jackie Subi, is not qualified for the job. So when I look over the names, even the guys who – you know, Jack Easterby's agency, like they represent a lot of head coaches, assistant coaches, personnel people. I look at their backgrounds and I'm like, that that guy sounds good. That guy sounds good. This guy sounds good because they're all football people. 
And they actually, if they became the GM, at least they would have some real qualifications. I know it's hard to win a Super Bowl. I think we all understand that. What's not hard is to run a normal franchise. And I just am very eager for the day in which the Texans have what every other NFL team has, which is a GM and a head coach. They are two different people. They are brought in and they are in tandem running the operation. I I think even just that basic level of structure will help this team immensely moving forward. I mean, yeah, because you could argue, you know, bar, uh, you know, or or perhaps even never has this franchise had that, I think, because if you think, you know, Kubiak was not, you know, Kubiak came in before Rick Smith. I know they were close, but then... um, it was, you know, it was arguable that you know they, they got the, the roster to a position that it was competitive enough, but it seemed to all fall away. And I think definitely since you know the end of the Kubiak era, we've never had that. So you know you're you know you're coming up for seven eight years of that. Um, and so it see it feels like you know you, there's just organic growth to be had even by this roster and you know in small sections next year, even if you don't improve it materially within talent, a decent coaching staff and some decent football people around that might give it a bit of a forward direction once more. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know if I fully agree with the idea that they, they haven't had that. I mean, they haven't had it with like two new people doing those jobs since 06. Uh, they have had, you know, a new coach in O'Brien in 2014. They had a new GM in 2018 in Brian Gain, but they have not had what at least they say they're going to do. And what I think will happen, which is a fresh start with a GM and a head coach. Yeah. And as G- Jamie Root said, I think hope will spring eternal. So uh, it needs to, I'm even, if it just, it, even if it just springs mildly, I think that'll, be, that'll put us in a, in, a perfor- in a position certainly better than we are now. talk about the game then I think I think you know we'll probably, the Easter be uh, sort of off field stuff's probably been done to death by everybody but I think ultimately it just hangs over everything but Sunday for the first time was a performance that I think you know that on both sides of the ball was was positive for the large part and I think talking about the press conference where Anthony Weaver got really fired up during the week and uh, and it almost felt like that uh, that frustration and that anger um, kind of showed in some of the, the defense aggression and some of the play calling as well. I thought this was their best performance of the season, both ends of the football. Offensively, they were awesome in the first half, scored 21 points, had to settle for a couple of field goals in the second half. But, you know, I don't know what was going on with New England's game plan. I thought they threw the ball way too much. I don't know why they seemed to give up on the running game after the first drive, which was so successful. But Deshaun was on point. That's obvious. Uh, and then the, the Texans defensively, when the Patriots did run, they were able to make some key stops. Bradley Roby on that toss against Burkhead. You know, Bradley Roby with an excellent play. Unfortunately, it hurts Burkhead, but it was a great football play. And then they started to, in the fourth quarter, really dial up the pressure. Uh, the double safety blitzes, which we saw from Anthony Weaver a couple times, seemed to really affect Cam. And honestly, this was, in his third season, I don't think Justin Reed has played a better game than he played on Sunday. And coming off of a bad performance against Cleveland, where he's taking shots at the media on Twitter, which was nonsense. Uh, But I thought to his credit, and he tweeted about it after the game, like he took that as motivation. And I just thought it was a very controlled aggression. Nine tackles, 
three and a half tackles for loss, a sack, two quarterback hits. Justin Reed played his best game on Sunday in his career, and I felt was the Texans' second best player. So kudos to him. He was excellent. Yeah, and I think with Reed, it's, you know, him and Zach Cunningham were expected to be, you know, pillars of this defense, and neither, I don't think, have played anywhere near the levels of where they would want it. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think Cunningham seems to have come better after the bye. I don't, I, you know, a lot of high angles on his tackles, and you know that was, you know, inherent in his game. But he seemed like yeah. the change of role. I think is was a, cha- a challenge for him. I think in the sense of not having B Mac there because he basically lived off B Mac scraps and and allowed him to, you know, consume blockers and he would just go, you know, chase chase down and make plays. So I think you know he had some adjusting to do. And I I think with Justin Reed as well, it's probably the worst secondary he's played with probably at any stage of his career from high school, you know, right to his final game in Stanford. So uh, I, I I feel for the guy in a sense that he's probably trying to do too much. But I think, yeah, when he looked like he'd probably had his worst game, um, he, then, you know, he goes out this the next week and, and has a good game. And Anthony Weaver talked about that. You know, he said he's he'll, he'll come good. It's just, it's just um, it just takes a bit of time. And, and 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 he was right. I think it was a good good performance, and I think that that read uh, or sorry the read read tackles you know by the line of scrimmage and particularly that Bradley Roby play um, that you referenced there, Mike. I, I couldn't remember the last time I've seen two defensive backs flying the backfield to make a stop. Yeah, I mean, it almost feels like any stop they make it is just it, it, you're like, where did that come from? I mean, I think even uh, you know even early in this game. Uh, even early in, in this football game, you know, the uh, the Patriots, they go down the field and they score 10 plays, 84 yards. And, and you're like, yep, this is what we're going to be in for all day. They're just going to run the ball and have screens of James White and this and that. And Houston gets the ball, goes down the field and scores. And then the Texans force a five and out uh, against the Patriots. And it was like, hmm. That was actually like a that was actually a pretty nice defensive possession, which we've rarely said so so far this season, and that kind of continued throughout different parts of the game. And I think with Reed, um, you know, I'm not some like defensive X's and O's uh, expert, but I just think when he's playing, when 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 he's moving forward, I think he's a little better than what he's you know retreating backwards. I think he's one of those defensive players. And so you want to, in the right situations, you know, keep him along the line of scrimmage, have him blitz against the run, have him blitz the quarterback and the three tackle, the three and a half tackles for loss, the the, the sack, the quarterback hits. I think those kind of speak for themselves. I thought that it was almost mildly frustrated at times because, you know, we're watching the game and, you know, the guys were, were sitting there going, you know, where's this been all year? You know, and I think that was, most people's reaction. I, I thought the defensive play calling looked similar to some of the stuff that Weaver was calling earlier in the unit. And then when O'Brien got fired, it felt like, you know, Cronell maybe had a bit more influence there. It was a bit more, I agree. you know, his, his kind of brand. And he'd obviously, you know, said, told him a couple of things he wanted to see change. And it, it felt like, you know, because I think that was the big thing, wasn't it? Anthony Weaver was talked up in the media over the summer that he would be an aggressive play caller. And, you know, it felt like, you know, we've gone away from that for the best part of six weeks. Um, yeah. I, well, I think one of the things that, that hurts you as a defensive coordinator is that when you're constantly trailing in game, right? I mean, if yeah. you're, if you can't stop the run and you're behind in almost every game that you play, then there's kind of a limit to how aggressive you're able to play. Right. I mean, like when you're playing, especially early in the season, when you're playing, 
the Chiefs, the Ravens, Minnesota, Tennessee for a while, certainly the Packer game. I mean, if you're if you're calling plays defensively and you're and you're behind on the scoreboard and you can't stop the run, there's going to be a limit to what you can do. And so I think we've seen some flashes here and there, you know, even against maybe Cleveland last week where they played a decent defensive game. Uh, that was obviously high wins, low point total sort of game. But in a game like this, when the Texans are playing from ahead for most of it and you're facing kind of a kind of a, a shaky quarterback in Cam Newton, it does allow Anthony Weaver the freedom to do some things that he may have wanted to do in other games but didn't really have the opportunity based on where the game was to actually do it. Yeah, I think it, yeah. I mean, it opens up the play sheet, right? If you've got a lead, doesn't it? Or you know that they're going to drop back and pass. But I think there was probably on both sides of the ball, but they gave us a bit of a free pass in the sense that if they just kept running every play like they did on that first drive, you know, it felt like, you know, here we go. Um, you know, you get a three and out or a, or, or a stall drive when he tries to um, when he tries to force that one to Duke Johnson. They go right up the other end and, and score. Um, but it, it did seem like there was a lot of creativity there because even on the the play just before they scored that opening touchdown, you had JJ dropping into coverage. Um, yeah, that, the, uh, I don't think we've seen that in a long time. No, <laughs> like, I can't remember the last time I, I saw that. I've seen that period. Well, I, I was thinking I, we were saying that watching the game. What was what was a rarer occurrence, the roof opening or uh, JJ in the coverage? Because I I don't think I've seen that. I think and. I think that the, the roof being open, actually, and uh, I saw a couple of people pick up on this, and it was a trick play, and there was the, I think it was, was it, was it Bird um, was, was, the, was the receiver, and I yep. think it was maybe My- Myers was the, was the deep. They're both open. Both were and, open. And it looked like, oh, I mean, we're speculating, of course, but it looked like Cam's vision could have been impaired by the, by the bright sunlight coming in that end of the, that end zone because the, the deep receiver was gone. And at that point, if they had scored a, a six there, then I think the game complexion might have changed. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That's always been my thing with, with the roof open. I know that this is like a, a big topic that people love to make fun of them for closing the roof all the time. I, that actually does not really bother me much because uh, just the way the stadium is built and with the roof and kind of the, the, the square design of it, that when you're playing and, you know, if it's overcast, it doesn't matter, but it's Houston. So usually there's going to be the sun and the sun's going to hit the field at weird angles. And I remember being in the stadium for a couple of the games where the roof was open. And I personally, even watching the game with my binoculars from high above, I didn't really love how it looked with the, with the shadows. And I thought, well, that's got to affect the players a little bit. And yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if on that trick play, Cam didn't see the deep receiver because of the shadows on the field. And the and the cat. I mean, it is. I think that the fact that it's a topic, I think, probably um, says something about the level of uh, of level of play that we've had on the field. Rather, if that is actually a topic yeah. for people to talk about, but um, the, I, I, you, you did notice it in the first half, and I thought the, the broadcast um, on CBS struggled with it as well because the the camera couldn't focus if the ball moved from <laughs> from, from in the sun to out the sun. Yeah, I think there, I think on the first drive of the game, Deshaun threw it like sort of in the middle of the field, like probably twenty yards, and the, they the the camera guy completely got faked out. Like they were on the other, they were like on the high side of the field. You couldn't see what the hell was going on. Yeah, and that that was another one. I think I, I counted three plays. I think now I, I, I won't criticize Deshaun because I think he had the best first half certainly. That he's had for a long time. There was there was three. I watched the all twenty two back there. There was three plays where Fuller was gone 
deep and he didn't find them. That one was that one where the where even the cameraman thought it was going. To him. Yeah, uh, and there was a couple. There was a couple of others uh, where he could have. Um, one of the drives we scored second. The one of the field goal drives in the second half. Um, that the Fuller was gone. It was an R, a failed sort of RPO play, which doesn't seem to be working for. Them. We'll come on to the run game, but talking about Deshaun's performance, I in the first half. That was some of the best football he's played in a long time. I couldn't remember the last time he's played a complete half of football, you know, to to that level. I think he was seventy eight percent completion rate at halftime. Yeah, it was. He was brilliant. I mean, you think about the first drive, the first touchdown drive, I should say, and when he's hitting that play to Cooks, which I think was a was a third down play. Uh, excuse me, it was a second and six. Hit him for uh, forty four yards. Just put it right in the right spot. Um, you know, he's able to hit Jordan Aikens for 22 yards on a ball that's just pinpoint place right at the shoulder. And then even the, the Cobb touchdown pass where Cobb got hurt in that play, but that was a not a big window sort of deal. I, I, I've been listening to uh, some of the Boston radio after the game because I'm always just kind of curious to see what those guys are saying. And they, they were annoyed at the game plan the Pats had defensively because they were like, uh, they basically kind of sat back and had the kind of had the kind of game plan that you would have if you were facing a bad quarterback, and you're like, well, let's just let's just like hope. Hopefully, the bad version of this quarterback shows up, and he just can't make the throws because we're gonna sit back here, we're gonna rush three guys thirteen times, rush four guys most of the time, and just kind of sit back here and see what he does. And Deshaun Watson just picked them apart basically the entire game. So that was their frustration. I mean, he was without question the best player on the field. I think that similar to the to their approach on offense when they kept you know throwing it and I forgot, forgot to mention. I think Philip Gaines is going for a record this year because he's been in this the defense for only four snaps and on those four snaps he's given up a touchdown every single one of those snaps. So yeah, I I, um, I, I want to go back because I feel like I've seen Philip Gaines on more than just four snaps. I feel like I've seen 29 way too often on my television screen. But I, I did see that earlier. Yeah, I saw that as well. I, I It felt a bit, a bit um, perhaps a bit unfair. I don't know if he's been burnt on every snap. Now, he has come in for a single snap and then been taken right off because he's given up a touchdown immediately. Yes. Um, and what's weird is that I, actually he actually had decent coverage on that touchdown of Bird. It was just that he just didn't... I, I know it's not as easy to play the ball as fans would have you would have you believe. But at least, you know, lift your arms up and just make it a little bit more challenging for Bird at the goal line. Yeah, yeah. Create a bit of a, a, a something <laughs> to try and, you know, get something on the ball, I think. But um, I think Lonnie Johnson, I think on that one, I, I saw Cornell talk about it in it. He, you know, Lonnie goes after the dig and actually Jacoby Myers talked about that, saying that the Texans had a play call that the safety was going to drive on every time he had an in-cup. Right, so I think he uh, Lonnie was getting a bit hungry because I think he's probably wanting an interception or something like that to try and announce himself at uh, safety, um, which he's not really. But he had a better game, I think, Lonnie Johnson. But most of it came through blitzing rather than actually any coverage yeah. ability. Yeah, I think Lonnie is going to be a, a long-term project, and he had two quarterback hits. Uh, he's definitely a guy who I think you want to use his physical traits in in a in a blitzing situation, which Anthony Weaver did a couple times. I remember Matt Weston uh, wrote at one point before his rookie season last year in 2019 that he thought that Lonnie was a three-year project. Well, <laughs> we're only in the middle of year two, 
And I know that kind of time frame doesn't really fit in with the modern NFL where people are so quick to move on. And I don't know what Lonnie is going to become. And I'm not so sure that that was a smart draft pick given where they were organizationally in 2019. But I do think if he is going to be a productive player, that is going to be a three-year project. And sometimes a project works and sometimes it doesn't. And so that's, that's kind of where I am at with Lonnie. I keep having flashbacks. I don't know if you remember the the brief snaps that uh, another Lonnie had, uh, Lonnie Ballantine, was it? They, they kept around for many oh, yeah, years. Very brief. Yeah, <laughs> brief. And uh, yeah, and, and and I remember actually in a game against Jacksonville where he got another injury and he he left the field and all the players were down on one knee around him. Yeah, and and he was one of those guys that. They kept her and kept her in big safety. They almost look identical when you see the two. They, were, they the really do. <laughs> um, starting to think it might be the same guy. He's just he's just come back. But I think the the he was a project. He never panicked. His his was for injuries, I think, because he was Mister Irrelevant, wasn't he? He was two hundred fifty six pick. Yeah, he um, was that that draft. So it yeah, it feels like you know when you have. To, but the, I think the big difference with Lonnie is he was a second rounder. Um, yep, and it. It just feels like something needs to flourish a bit more, you know. Because if you think like Jonathan Grenard's third round pick gets a sack, yeah, has, fla- has flashed, you know, and you want to see flashes. But um, yet the only flashes I've seen at Lonnie Johnson is actually given up touchdowns rather than actually. I'm yet to see him save one. Put it that way. Yeah. No. And he's a guy. And you know, Cody and I have disagreed about this. I. I look at Lonnie, and I know there's obviously room for bigger cornerbacks in the NFL, but I look at him, and I'm just like, I don't know if he has the the, the quick the quickness, the quick twitch muscles and fibers to be able to to hold up as an outside corner. And so when I looked at him even a year ago, I was thinking, you know, you move this guy to safety, you take the coverage skills that he had as a cornerback, and you combine it with his his raw physical ability, and I think you could have something at safety. Now, obviously, you have to know what you're doing at safety. You have to know the schemes, who you're covering. Uh, I think one of the touchdowns against Pittsburgh looked like it was completely on Lonnie. It was a complete coverage bust. I think it was on him. I could be wrong about that. And I need to look at what the snap count was on Sunday because it's not like he's out there, you know, 80% of the time. Um, But this is, I think this team hung on to too many guys way too long. And I think the the key key thing on Sunday shows you that um, and getting rid of DeAndre Carter finally, they they need to use these games. I know they want to win. I, I get that. But they really need to use the, these games, at least partially slash substantially, to find out what they have in some of these guys. And Lonnie Johnson is one of the prime examples of that kind of player who might be part of the future, may not be part of the future. And they need to start figuring that out by watching him hopefully develop on the field with actual reps. Yeah, so Justin Reed calling them was it the evil twins or something like that? I thought it was a bit, um, a bit dangerous uh, territory when you're uh, sitting with seven losses um, and yeah. coming up for nicknames when your when your defense has been this bad. Uh, but they, I don't know, that's maybe that kind of, that's the kind of attitude you have to have as a mental attitude as a secondary player to to brush off all the uh, all the all the uh, the mental aspect of it, which I think it's a difficult position to play, and I don't expect Lonnie to. You know, be a star, but I just you'd like to see something that more than we have done at this stage. But it looks like you know there is a basis there for your two safeties next year, and if you know we can see you know similar levels of play for the rest of the season, it'll make you feel a bit better about 
about that side of the ball. And obviously the rest of the secondary bar, Bradley Roby will be the first players to be cut, you've got to think. Um, as you saw on that that, that long touchdown and, and our wide receiver, who I wasn't even that familiar with, you know, led led the New England 300-odd yards and a pass and attack. Well, but at times think- it, it looked very easy. So you think you think Roby will will be cut next season? No, I'm saying everybody bar Roby will be cut. Oh, sorry, yeah, 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 I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I think Roby is one of the few keepers in in the secondary, and yeah, I mean they're going to need what the Texans will need between the lack of cap space and the lack of draft capital they have is they desperately need to find guys who are relatively cheap who are at least around average as starters. Um, and I, I know I, in an ideal world, you want way above average, but again, the whole beggars can't be choosers. Like I think next year is going to be a transition season. I think they'll win many more games. I think they'll, I think they'll hopefully contend for a playoff spot next season, just because I don't expect them to have the worst run defense in the league, the worst rushing game uh, in the NFL. So I think they'll be better, but it's critical even for that kind of season to find guys who are cheap investments, who are playing at an acceptable level. Like, I keep talking about this with my friends, but it's like last year they had Jaleel Adai, who they barely paid anything, and was yeah. a, a pretty good contributor. Now they're paying way too much for Eric Murray for God knows what reason. Yeah, I, I think I counted twice at least in this game, and he does it every week in zone coverage. He gets the angle wrong, the safety's deep. <laughs> He's the slot corner. He doesn't cut off the front side enough, and there's an easy uh, reception on the boundary. He does it every week, and like you know, that contract was going to be. Bad. I mean, it's been beaten to death that one. That contract was going to be bad. It's yep. as bad as everybody thought it would be. Yep. But you've got. I think he's probably not going to have much choice but to see if he can give you something as maybe your third or fourth safety, or the more, the most expensive third or fourth safety in the league. But I, 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 an example of a guy like that, Mike, I think is. Somebody like Pharaoh Brown, who came in, he had that great run where he, he yeah, stiff-armed the DB in the face. He's a good, good blocker. Um, and those are the kind of guys you want to have. You know, you want, he's never going to be your first tight end, but he, you know, he, he has made the coaches distribute the snaps differently than he did before he was in the building. I think that probably shows that a guy on a veteran minimum was a big star at Oregon, almost lost his leg um, and a terrible injury. Um is, is come in and actually looks like a decent pickup. So those kind of guys are the ones that I think the Texans are going to have to find at least five or six of to fill out this roster for next year. Yeah, I think that's a good number. Do you think that Kahali Waring is going to play because they activated him, but between Akins, who had his career best game on Sunday, uh, Fells, you know, who's fine, and then Farrell Brown, who, as you mentioned, has done some things blocking as a good physical presence. I don't know that we're going to see Kahali out there all that quickly here. Uh, if it were, if it were, no, do I think no? <laughs> um, if it were me, I would just take all the fell snaps and give them the warring for the rest of the year because he, yeah, I think I, he only played I, 30, 40 percent. He's not going to give you anything. We know what he is at this stage. He's a good player in a rotation. Um, you know, fails or, or flatters to deceive to be a blocker. I, I don't think he's a blocker that everybody hoped he would be, despite his, you know, his frame and, and, and yeah. arm length that he should be. Um, but I think Pharaoh Brown's coming and taking that, that as the primary blocker on the edge, um, uh, in line with the formation. So I think you know, will we'll Warren come? I hope so because it, you know you talk about the Lonnie Johnson pick in the exact same draft, you know, and I know uh, the, the the Patriots running back was taken to pick later, so it was kind of po- <laughs> it was poignant for this weekend um, as he's been 
you know, removed from IR. But he's a guy that you didn't need to take at that position. Now, I, I think they would have taken Jalen Ferguson uh, from, uh, I think it's Louisiana Tech. And I think he went to the Ravens a couple of times. Yeah, because I know they were big on him. So I think they were the one he wanted. And then I think, you know, Gaines had best player available. So it was one of those guys that fell in their lap. Uh, more than I think they desperately wanted, but I mean, I'm it, just, you know what does it? Here's the thing: I, I look at this, and I know it's very easy to go back in a draft and say, "Well, this guy was good, that guy was good; they should have taken that player." But the the Kahali wearing draft pick never made any sense to begin with, because no. and I don't know if that's a Brian Gain problem, I don't know if that's a Bill O'Brien problem, combination thereof. But like they had just taken Akins and Thomas the year before. The only way the Texans, and I know, you know, spring 2019 feels like it was basically 15 years ago at this point, but like at that spot, if you're taking a tight end, if you're the Texans, that guy better be an ass kicker. That guy better be someone who you think, man, I can't believe this guy is here. He's going to be a star. I'm amazed this guy has dropped this spot. And Kahali Waring clearly was not that kind of prospect. That was a luxury pick for a team that I don't think had the ability to make a luxury pick. And now you look back and you mentioned Ferguson, uh, who went one pick earl- uh, earlier than Waring. Uh, Damian Harris, who you mentioned, went one pick later. He'd be nice to have. Bobby Okariki, who the Colts have, who looks like he's a pretty good coverage linebacker. Um, you know, I don't know if Connor McGovern's any good. Uh, Jamel Dean for the Bucks. Yeah. I don't know how good he is, but like I watched him play and he's always mentioned. So I'd rather have him than Kahali Waring. It was just a really, it was a really, really puzzling draft pick and it continues to be that way a year and a half later yeah i don't know i think you'll well i don't know if, well hopefully he won't be remembered as uh, ryan griffin putting his uh his hand through the, the window at the marriott rather than uh yeah. <laughs> rather than the pick but it seems that way at the minute um and it yeah it did seem an odd one but i i often go and i think why people are infatuated by him is the reports from the joint practices at Green Bay, you know, were glowing. Um, yeah. And then he just got it. I think he got a concussion and he missed time. And he's, you know, and then he was on IR. And then, but I, I, what I thought was strange, when he went on IR again this year, nobody really clarified what was wrong with him. Yeah, it's almost like they're hiding whatever the injury might be because they don't want to admit that he's not very good. I I, I honestly can't figure it out. Like, he's he's in the category of players, like, I just want him forced on the field and just to see what he looks like. And if he's bad, then at least I want to see it with my own eyes because then it makes it easier for me to accept it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I, I, if he was that bad, why not just cut him, you know, and cut your losses, you know, in year, in year two if he just wasn't up to, you know, you go through yeah. training camp, albeit limited this year. It's uh, and I, just I, say, look, it's, there's probably no purpose for them in cutting him now. Like, there's, there's probably much no. more value in them keeping him, especially with this kind of season and then activating him at some point like they have within the past week. And then he gets some playing time, and who knows, maybe he shows you something and you feel better about him moving forward. Yeah, and I think I, I got another guy who you know was a you know mid-round pick. Kiki comes back in. Um, and I was at the game in Indianapolis when I saw him make his, his first, first start. Yep. And, he, and I've never seen a player in any time for the Texans come in, particularly in offense, that skill position, and just make an instant impact, you know, and it was end arounds, it was motions in the backfield, which he did, you know, on Sunday. Um, and I, I don't know if that's his specific role and nobody else performed. I know uh, Cobb 
does a bit of that, but it seems like he's consistently on the move of the, to, to try and to try and get the the, the linebackers to shift. Um, it was good to see him come back in. I thought Mike because it feels like there's a lot of untapped potential there, and it's just been a mix of O'Brien emotion and coaching that's been and, and injury that's not gotten to realise his potential. Yeah, you hit on it. Whenever Bill O'Brien put a player in the doghouse or had an issue with with a player because of personality issues, I always sided with the player over O'Brien. I, I just think that I, I think whatever O'Brien is looking for in a, in a football player, I think is wrong. I, I mean, I'll just say I, I think I think Bill O'Brien's evaluation of football players on their traits is incorrect. That, that's the simplest way I can put it. And Kiki is a good example of that. And while I'm sure, <laughs> in a weird way, like. I wonder if Randall Cobb's actions and comments in the media kind of helped push O'Brien out the door a month ago, a month and a half ago. I'm just kind of speculating here. And I think some of his comments have been sort of interesting to the media. It, the signing really made no sense to me, particularly the contract that he got. And then you put Kiki on the field on Sunday after the Cobb injury, and he looks pretty decent out there. And it's another, and he's out there, you know, returning punts as well. And it's another example of sometimes you need to cut your losses with this dead weight at the front of the roster, whether it's DeAndre Carter, I don't like the Cobb contract whatsoever, and just see what you have in Kiki. I understand he can drive you nuts with some of his big mistakes. The fumble against Denver last year, like that completely changed the course of that game, even though they were down, whatever, 35 or 3 at halftime. That fumble was just a massive play. I get why that would make a coach angry, but I, I just think he's a really I think he's a talented player. And, and the weirdest part to me about it is that Kiki can go from like being inactive for weeks at a time to being active for a game like Sundays against the Patriots, and then he gets in the game and it's like he's lining up here, he's lining up there, he's in the pre-snap motion. I'm like how is this guy just inactive for long stretches? And yet when he's in there, he seems to be a critical part of what you guys are doing. It's just, it's really, really strange to me. He's obviously an NFL caliber player. And I think when you, you know, you touch on the DeAndre Carter release, I don't think the mistakes, I don't, well, I think like you're saying about O'Brien at value, I think the, the person was valued more than their their football and ability, and I think when you when you compare that like for like to DeAndre Carter, the mistakes that Carter made, you know, all the fumbles last year, he started off this year, you know, they at worst they were on a par with Kiki's mistakes, um, and he he and he was given chance after chance after chance to to do nothing and basically sit back there and let the ball bounce from the five yard line, which he did for most of the season before he was cut. Um, and then Kiki comes in and he makes an impact. Now I think, Luke, I think Deshaun forces balls into him at times, and he did that uh, yeah, he did on a third down play. And that was one of the ones I mentioned earlier about Fuller was away. Um, he'd gone up, up the sideline and beat the guy off the line, and there was no safety uh, deep to, to help out. So, you know, I think he does for and he forced another one into the, the a deep ball in the end zone. Um, Kiki was calling for a flag, and that was one of the the, the two field goal plays um, or the, the field third down that made us go for a field goal. But he comes in and contributes straight away and it just makes you think, you know, as you said, if, if he just had been given a fair chance, are you saddled with that Randall Cobb contract? Now, I don't think that's our biggest problem, but it's certainly maybe, you know, top 10 um, as, we're, as we're looked, you know, as the next regime look to rebuild the roster. But it feels like, again, just more small bits of mismanagement all kind of creeping into one bigger picture. Yeah, it's another example, as you mentioned, the way the roster has been 
mismanaged. It's probably not the worst thing in the world, I, I suppose. They, they have other much bigger issues with, with their contracts. But I am curious to find out over these next, I mean, right now the Texans are three and seven, so six games to go. Um, what we see from Kiki moving forward, if he can look like the player who had those two big games against Indianapolis back in 2018, if we see more of that there, uh, because that would change some things as far as how I'm looking at things for uh, 2021. I mean, he's going to have some opportunities here starting on Thursday uh, against the Lions because it seems like this Cobb injury, you know, it might be a significant toe injury. He's getting a second opinion. You know, who knows if we even see him for the rest of the season. So Kiki might just be the slot guy for the rest of 2020. Yeah. Yeah, I think I actually talked about this last week with Brandon as well, but I felt like you, you could have said to Kiki and Stills, you guys are going to be our two slot. We're going to rotate you in and out. And, you, you know, that contract was not necessary and that $12 million a year could have badly gone to a defence. But, on you know, I thought I think Cobb has been okay and he's, he's, he's made his plays. I think he gives them that sort of nouse over the top or, or across the middle when to, when to sit down in the zone and just take his, you know, his easy completion. I think that's the issue. Kiki does, but... Every time I think about it, not to you know to labour this point too much, but oh, on you know on a on a four string receiver, but I remember when he was out with a hamstring injury in his rookie year, and O'Brien who didn't never you know he never handed out compliments unnecessarily, and he said yeah. a player a player like a great or a good player like that should not be missing this length of time. We can't have that happen again. So he he basically outwardly yeah. admitted that it was a big loss to that offense. Now I know there was probably many excuses he peddled to Cal and whoever about how his offense wasn't productive enough in 2018. However, he at that point he was valued. So the, the talent's obviously there, and you hope you know you get to see a good chunk of them. For the remainder, so the next coaching staff definitely at least want to give him, a, you know, give him a, a fighting chance to make a roster spot next year. Yeah, I yeah, I don't really have a ton to add to that. Uh, I'm just curious again how Kiki is going to play uh, the rest of the way, and you know, he's not an outside receiver, so the Texans have some decisions to make as far as Fuller's contract, Brandon Cooks, and his money, so it doesn't impact that per se. But it would be nice if Kiki has, you know, a big game or two and plays well for a stretch here because this team, again, considering the cap situation and the draft pick situation, they need all the cheap young help they can get. And you think we've got a chance potentially to see Coulter as well? Um, I think yeah. Because Stills, well, I, I, I've had a theory all season, Mike, that I don't know and if this is necessarily fair or not. But I love theories. But... Do you not think Kenny Stills' head is just not in it this year? I have no idea what's going on. Like, I, I maybe. Uh, I know he said he considered opting out pretty strongly and opted against it maybe towards the end. It's a fair theory. Um, it, it is bizarre that a guy who's always been fairly productive, who came in last season very late with not a lot of time and immediately made an impact and had, I think, a fairly decent season, made some big plays, has been just completely MIA for them. And – you know, they like running empty sets and having a bunch of receivers, and yet he's really been just not much of a factor whatsoever for them. Yeah, I, I just go back to the offseason and looking on, I totally respect his, 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 uh, his work, you know, in, in terms of equality and going out. Yeah. But, you know, from, right from that arrest to that emotional press conference he gave, which was great, by the way, but I think there's, there's two very different kind of, Headspaces you need to be in one that needs to learn a pro you know system 
playbook. And, and do you know what? I don't even think it's his, his knowledge of the playbook. And I, I think it's maybe just his application, his desire, and maybe he's he thinks there's big, bigger issues out there. He's at a point in his career where he's made money and, he's, and, he, and he probably doesn't need to play another season after this one. And I, I would think he would get signed by another team because he certainly won't be in Houston. Um, but it yeah. feels like, again, just wasted talent because if she can come in week one that not even no not even had a you know a week's worth of of conditioning with a new team come over from a trading catch up a, a potential touchdown that should have won a game in week one last year and made a lot of big plays for this team yep. at big points it feels like again we've just got guys taking up space from you know when you could really be getting something out of them well, yeah, I mean, you look at the cap table right now, and Kenny Stills, is his cap hits $7 million. And I know that it's it's essentially for this year a one-year deal that they could have cut him if they wanted to. Or actually, they couldn't have, I think, because of the dead cap. Um, but they're just in a spot where, if you look in hindsight, like you would have rather spent that $7 million almost anywhere else. Defensive back, safety, another edge guy, He's not for this season giving you near the bang for the buck. Yeah, we, we've just talked about the best part twenty million dollars here on the offense that isn't really doing a huge amount that could have easily been replaced. So I think it probably probably sends you know gives a good you know microcosm into the the, the roster composition that, that we're facing. Um, but I think the despite all that, you know, I think it probably we touched on it earlier, but I don't think probably did it enough justice. I thought that the ball placement. And the way in which he was dropping the passes over linebackers' heads, uh, he was he was faking guys out um, in terms of in terms of zone coverage, and then just dropping the ball. I thought that was Deshaun's. It was it was great to watch, and I think the second half wasn't so bad. I think there was both those drives. There were fourth and third, and fourth and second. I think yeah. fourth and two rather. Um, that they probably would have gone for if they were chasing the game. Um, Good point. And. And I, and I thought as well, I don't know what you thought about the tripping call from Kyle Duggar on uh, Jordan Aitkins, yeah. but that was the most blatant trip of, of I think the rest could have missed really. They, they missed a lot of calls, I thought, on Sunday. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a play that we kind of forget about. And CBS did a horrible job of not showing that in, in slow motion afterwards. But it looked like that was definitely a trip in that uh, situation. And I, I just thought the bigger picture of the game is that we know what the issues of the, of the team are, and we spent a lot of time talking about it. You know, Jack Easterby, what they did with O'Brien, the lack of draft picks, the lack of cap space. But I have to imagine, if you're somebody who wants to be a head coach in the NFL watching that game, then the opportunity to coach Deshaun Watson is one that is not one that comes around often. Now, this is a weird year for head coaching candidates in that there are some really appealing spots. You know, if the Chargers fire Anthony Lynn... Justin Herbert has had, I think, an excellent rookie season. Um, so that's someone you want to coach as well. And he, unlike Deshaun, is going to be on that is on that rookie contract. Other guys will have the ability to coach Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, uh, some of those guys. But those players are not as much known quantities. I know Deshaun will be operating on his second contract and will be compensated what he's worth. But I, I just think that's the bigger that's the bigger picture of the game on Sunday. That you can win with this player because of how special he is. And even by himself, with the litany of issues the organization has, he makes this Texans job a good one because of who he is and how good he is. The the way in which he's just sprayed the ball around 
round was just, I thought that was, I, I, I was trying to think, when do you think that was the last time he played that well and just looked like he was on every throw, was almost on the money? I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't I, quite think. Yeah, I got to think about the games this year because I think Deshaun has had, it, it, it's weird that like we, we we went so long like looking for a franchise quarterback. Now they have one and they're <laughs> they're three and seven. Um, you know, I think about, I mean, I think he was really, I thought, let me see here. Uh, I thought in the Tennessee game, the overtime loss, I think Deshaun was really, really good that day. And they obviously lost that game because of their defense and not their offense. Like he didn't get the ball back after the failed two-point conversion, right? Like they went down the field, scored two points, got the ball, and then scored again. Four touchdowns, no picks. So I think he's played at this level, maybe not quite as sharply as he was uh, in this game. I also thought the first half against Pittsburgh, he was excellent. Yeah, the first half against Pittsburgh was great. And I think that's probably the loss that if you see them sitting, what are they, 9-0 now? Um, 10-0. That's probably the one that we've been closest to, apart from the apart from the Tennessee game. But you expect a, a close game when it's, when it's in your division. But yeah, I think he... he he looked like the player that everybody thought he could be. And I think, you know, everybody's talked about Mahomes and him and Mahomes will always be compared, but it felt like on Sunday he flashed enough. If you're, a, as you said, if you're a head coach, I remember Thomas Dimitrov talking about that. And he says, until you find a franchise quarterback, it's something that it's a search that will consume you uh, until oh, yeah. you do. And it, it is, and it's basically, you know, if you if you think of all the hours and time spent every draft and having to do that, when you take that out of it and you have that that you know that leg up and that and and that initial starting point for anybody, you think if you're going to be a first time GM or a second time GM or a first time head coach, or you're gonna you know, or the or the new GM is going to go out and try and sell the Texans to to, to anybody, I think you just put on the tape of the first half, and uh, and I. Not that, not that I think many would need to, but I think people would just love the. Ch- I think because everybody is, it's it's an environment that's full of sort of alpha guys that think they can do it their own way, and I think you never underestimate when you see some of these signings. You know, and it was probably the arrogance of the coaching staff of what we can do to coach these guys up, and I think anybody who's at, at this level of coaching in the profession, I, I would, I think you'd be hard pressed. Apart from Mahomes, I, I don't think there's any other quarterbacks that people would rather work with. Yeah, and you think about what we thought of Deshaun's situation relative to Mahomes and Lamar, Lamar Jackson, and now, you know, as you continue to kind of go through it, you know, Mahomes is in his own stratosphere, obviously. But I mean, right now, I think if you ask people would they take Deshaun Watson or Lamar Jackson right now, I think most people are taking Deshaun. And I think it was interesting what Belichick told uh, the guys on the pregame show on the Sports Hub in Boston before Sunday's game, Belichick talked about how, quote, I think Watson is really a complete quarterback, and they run very much of a traditional professional NFL passing game, a lot of RPOs, some moving pocket plays. Watson has the ability to make all the throws, handle the passing game from empty to three-by-one, two-by-two sets, intermediate, deep, and quick throws, and moving pocket, pocket plays. So this is a very difficult offense to defend, and I would say Watson – has shown the ability as a quarterback to be as versatile, really, as anybody we faced. Now, I know that Belichick usually compliments people before he plays them, but I think there's a level of detail there that I think it's true. I think the analysis is is correct in that Deshaun is starting to become a more complete quarterback. And you mentioned being able to 
pass the ball and distribute it to different players. I mean, I'm looking at the receiving chart and it's, you know, Fuller gets his share of targets, Cooks, Aikens, and then a little bit here with Fells and Brown. I'd still like to see more of Duke Johnson. And keep in mind that Deshaun is doing this with the worst running game in the NFL. And the only part of the running game that's any good is him. I, I saw, I think he was 88% or above of almost 90% of all yards was either from his arm or his legs. And that, I think Tim Kelly probably deserves some credit in the sense that, you know, our running game for the remainder of the season, because I don't think you can fix it. Correct me if you think otherwise, Mike, but I don't think you can fix it in season. Um, I've, ta- I've, yeah. I've taken a snapshot of all the run plays up bar the, bar, bar the three on the final drive where they're just, they're just trying to kill time um, before they punt. Um, but I think the, I don't think you can fix it. So I think that there's an acknowledgement of short dump off passes, screen passes is our running game for the for heat on out because I think we've just got a distinct lack of coaching on the offensive line and we're just not moving the pile. I think from 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 my initial look today, and I'm going to try and write an article on this this week. How can we fix the run game? Or what are the issues in the run game? Just taking those plays from Sunday. Because when you think when you're passing the, can you pass to set up the run? And you think when your quarterback is passing it that well. That should allow you at least to run the ball a bit, but even despite that, they just could not run it at all. Again, you know, for for now that you know the tenth game in a row. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I'm at a point now, and this last game was really the breaking point for me. I don't think it's on the players anymore. The running game for for me, it's on the coaches, and because for the running game to be this bad, where basically having a three yard run is like a good play. To me, that's on the coaches. Now, if you want to tell me that they need to upgrade the interior of the offensive line and the running backs aren't good enough, that's fine. But there's no excuse for the running game to be this putrid. And at this point, I, I am saying that most of it is the scheme and actually not the talent. That's where I'm at. Yeah, I, I, I just can't for the life of me work out why you could run it last year, regardless of the running back. Because I know. And you think because if you see how many, you know, like think of Le'Veon Bell – Think of uh, you know in, in Pittsburgh, and then you know he got, he's never he's never reached anywhere near the same heights. And, and I always think your running game is a is a byproduct of your talent up front and your scheme. And I think arguably yeah. we've got the talent, but they're coached terribly, so that that talent is equalised to a degree. And the scheme is the biggest equaliser because I just don't think we know what our proficiencies are. But I thought it was interesting, Mike, when you saw Duke Johnson in the press conference. I think, I think it, was, it wasn't this week, but the week prior. And he said, I think, you know, we can run outside zone. Uh, the rest of it we struggle with was effectively what he said. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and when, when, you're, when one of your players comes out and says that, I, 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 I find there's obviously a disconnect there between the type of run plays that they're calling versus the type of run plays that the players think they can run. Yep. I mean, I, I, I just think that the running game is broken – at this point, like I don't, I honestly don't care if you have five minimum salary guys playing on your offensive line and three minimum salary running backs. There's no excuse for a running game to be this bad. I mean, you, it just it can't be it can't be this hard to gain three to five yards in, in the NFL. I, I just refuse to accept that. And I think probably the biggest, if the biggest underlying takeaway I think you could take from Sunday was, and I know it was part of the the New England scheme and and 
by the way, do you th- just on a side note, is there a worse haircut in the NFL, maybe the Oakland owner, than uh, Belichick <laughs> Jr.? Yeah, yeah. It is kind of weird that he's letting him run that defense, which is not – I know in the advanced stats it has not been pretty for them. Yeah, um, odd one. I think is he, he's obviously sees it as a lost season, doesn't he? So he's obviously just – I think he's given him the chance to hopefully maybe go and get a job elsewhere. Maybe that's the case. He won't be there next year. But but, but I, I know they only rush 3-4 like we talked about, but I think – on a day where the pass protection was looked by far its best was a day that Laramie Tunsil wasn't playing. Yeah, I do think that they got lucky in their opponent because the Patriots, to me, I don't know if the numbers back this up, but I think they have the worst pass rush in the NFL. I mean, they, they don't have guys who – I know Winovich had a nice game against the Ravens, but right now they they can't rush the passer. I mean, against the Jets, they couldn't rush the passer at all. They were They were not getting close to Flacco – the Ravens game was weird. It was played in, in bad weather. Um, they do not have – they don't have any juice right now rushing the passer. So I felt if the Texans were going to play a game that they didn't have Laramie Tunsil, this was the game. It reminded me, I don't know if you remember the London game last year, but that was a game that Tunsil missed as well, didn't make the, the right. trip. And uh, that was probably one of their better offensive performances as well. And I was watching some tape the other week, and you know if you remember Deshaun's rookie year when you had – Jack Amini and Chris Clark out there. And I was, you know, and you're watching and you see all the, the injuries that the Chiefs have had on their offensive line as well. And it doesn't matter because the ball comes out quick or the scheme allows the, you know, allows the layup, you know, layup offensive plays that, that, that mean the quarterback's not holding on to it for a length of time that pass protection becomes overemphasized. And I, I don't know. I think, I mean, look, the, the, the trade for Tunsil's, you know, it's, it's been done to death. But it feels like sometimes when your quarterback's that good and if your scheme was just 5-10% better, yep. you, don't, you didn't need to make that investment. And I, I obviously your your reflections of it will change over time. But I, that reflection or that sentiment certainly seems to become more reoccurring, I think, over time when, when we're, we're starting to see that one play out. Yeah, I mean, and it just it's, it's another example of when you give – one person way too much power and there's not a clear plan for the organization to land a left tackle, then they end up overpaying for one and giving him a ton of money. It's nothing, it's nothing against Tunsil at all. I think he's a genuinely uh, very good to excellent player. And he's, um, and you know, I know he's had a few injury issues, but he's mostly stayed healthy here. I know he had the flu on Sunday. I think he'll be back for this game against the lions, but they would be better off with a, mediocre investments probably and an average left tackle to be able to redistribute those assets into getting defensive players or something else as opposed to what they gave up to get Laramie Tunsil. I think he's an excellent player, but it's just that when you give up so much to get that player, it's going to hurt you with the rest of the roster. Yeah, because I, I think that, well, certainly my sort of reflection, you know, and the league changes, you know, it's continually changing every year, but I think on defense – and we certainly see it from a Texans viewpoint that the the defense is about stacking as many talented players yep. as you can because on an on an offense you can run you know look at the, the the Saints they've got one good receiver the rest guys are you know you probably your average fan struggle to name the rest of the skill positions uh, Bar Camara and then you know but you can't have a successful defense if you've only got one good pass rusher the Texans have shown that this year yep. um, so. It's about stacking talent, and hence why I'm I'm almost against the more I think about it now is actually having a defensive head coach 
Um, because actually, if you look at Salah, you know, you and I could get, you know, get good sack production out of that line when healthy in San Francisco, you know, you know, because it's just, it was just, it was talent upon talent. Um, and I think we've, we've seen, we've seen that. So I think, yeah, it's just, it wasn't what we needed, I think is, is probably, um, if we were going to take the next step, but look, I think overall great performance, um, a good win, a good, good to get that sort of positivity and that 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 display of what is on the roster. Final quick note: PG Hall, do you bring him back? Torpec out for the rest of the season. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to bring him back at, at a cheap number if I can get him. Um, he's obviously not not a solution to stopping the run, but I think he's shown enough flashes to where he intrigues me. I, I actually did a bunch of his games at Sam Houston State, and he was obviously a, a super talented player at that level. Yes, that was a that was one of their very few good moves of the offseason, and I'd look to bring him back. Yeah, I think he's 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 flashed enough to suggest that you know if you can get him on a vet minimum to you know one one and a half a year, then I think that'll be um that'll be right. Detroit on Thursday, Thanksgiving. Um, two teams that are kind of in a similar position where they've got good quarterbacks, but necessarily not the roster. Detroit look banged up at the minute. I think they're maybe in a position that they'll be looking for a new head coach. Um, I think. Yeah. Patricia's not made many friends there, nor has the the uh, inherited owner. What do you? So they're kind of similar teams in in terms of their their sort of on and off field outlook. Mm-hmm. You think the Texans can go there and make a make a performance? I know they were there four years ago with the the, the uh, Justin Forsett um, touchdown. They got they got they got a free one from the refs there. But um, you think it's you know you think coming considering they've, they've just been shot out by Carolina and a and an XFL quarterback that we could go and uh, build on build on Sunday. Yeah, I actually expect the Texans to win this game, which I know is a dangerous place to be with a 3-7 and seven team. Um, the Lions didn't score against the Panthers. I, I'm sure they'll score in this game because I don't expect the Texans' defense to back it up that quickly on the road with a short turnaround. Uh, but I just think that the Texans will be able to score points against the Lions with Deshaun playing at this level. They'll have Tunsil back. Um, injury-wise, they don't have a ton of huge concerns for this game. And I actually expect them to go in there and be able to win against the Lions. Yeah, interesting that we're going to be, you know, I think DeAndre Swift's still out. So I think we'll be Adrian Peterson predominantly running their attack, which you didn't think you'd say that in 2020. But I think that, yeah, I think it's a, it's a matchup that favours Houston because we can outgun them on offence if we continue to play the levels we did on Sunday. And, and there, there should be enough firepower in there to just, you know, to go on the road and put a good performance on. I think Deshaun as well... And I think this is probably inherent in a lot of young players now. I think when they're on stage, I think because they're more entrenched in social media than you know previous generations, I think they seem to have a way of finding a gear when it when, when they know everyone's watching. Yeah, and uh, while the matchup is not that appetizing for the national audience, I think if Deshaun plays <laughs> close to the way that he did on Sunday against the Patriots, I think people would enjoy watching that performance a lot on Thanksgiving. Yeah. And uh, Mike, any Thanksgiving traditions that you've got? Or are you always uh, working? Uh, no, this year I'm actually, I'm not going back home uh, for Thanksgiving for like the second time in the last 10 years just with COVID and I'm just <laughs> nervous about traveling. So it'll just be, you know, me and, and a friend basically. So that that's, that's really about it. I'm really just about like eating and watching as much football as possible. Any any um any food favorites? I'm going to attempt to do a Thanksgiving dinner this year, so I'm open <laughs> to suggestions. I'm not a I'm not a great cook to say the least, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I, I would say my favorite Thanksgiving side is usually stuffing. 
stuffing, right? Okay, yes. okay, okay. I've been trying to pull uh, as many people this week to see if I can get it right. So we'll see what we can do. You do a better uh, job than I would. I'll put it that way. Yeah, not um, not being able to travel the the games for the, but the first time in about seven years has has not been uh, has been it's been quite strange actually watching it from the outside, not being able to go and you know see it live. So yes. um, I think Detroit will have some fans in there, but I, I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's necessarily one of those. I think, well, I, no, I think, to be fairness, I think uh, Ford, Ford uh, Field is is one of those stadiums, original franchise team, big tradition on Thanksgiving. And I think the crowd does make a bit of noise. So I think taking that out of it as well probably only help you. Uh, yeah, I, I think so too. Plus playing in an indoor environment, I think also is, is helpful for the way this team uh, plays. Um, I, I think you saw against... You know, the Browns, like the Texans, the way they're built right now with the complete inability to run the football or stop the run, you want to have the you want to have it basically be as neutral of an environment as possible. Yeah, because it, it, it almost feels like I think Belichick said that at the start of the year, didn't he? He said, What's, what did the game with no, with no fans remind you of? And he simply said, practice. So I think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, I think uh, you know, I think that helps. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Mike. I fully expect to. To go and to go and hopefully win the second game in a row for what feels like a really long time. Just before we wrap up, I know we touched on it. Do you have any uh, preference for head coach or GM? Uh, do I have any preference for head coach or GM? Um, well, you know, honestly, for a GM, not really. Uh, the ones that I've seen floated out there all have pretty decent resumes to me. Uh, head coaching wise, the guys, I'd be okay with Eric Bieniemy. I would just need to know more about what his philosophy would be as a head coach. I want to know more information about uh, what his exact role is in Kansas City. Two guys who I would absolutely interview for this job for head coach would be Joe Brady, the OC of the Panthers, and the defensive coordinator of the Colts, Matt Eberflus. Those Those are two guys I would really like to interview because their resumes interest me a lot. Yeah, I think the enemy one is what was the biggest inhibitor of all, I think he's been for eight, six, eight in that region anyway, head coach interviews and not got the job. I'd love to know or ask, not not that they'd probably tell anybody in Houston, but what was the reason he didn't give him the job? Because it yeah. feels like he's just been overlooked too many times. Um, but then again, I think there's something appealing about that, that, you know, he could make it happen. It seems like he's Deshaun's choice. He's certainly the popular, you know, outside looking in choice. Um but yeah, I think that's that's the issue, isn't it? Is it just Andy? Is he just a byproduct of Andy Reid, or is it, or is he a supporting factor to Andy Reid? Yeah. I think that's the question that nobody, unless you're sitting in that interview, will probably be able to answer. And and truthfully, can he answer that himself? And maybe that's why he hasn't got one of these. One yeah, of these I, I mean that that's the hard part because I, I just you know you're, you're asked to for for your opinions on head coaching candidates, and and honestly, it's just I, I know it's a, it's almost a cop out, but it's like I, I don't know because. These, a lot of the candidates have never been head coaches. Um, now, if Jim Harbaugh has interest in going back to the NFL, he's been an NFL head coach, and you can look at his resume and and think accordingly. But, like, what I know about Joe Brady is it is unquestionable that Joe Brady is one of the best young offensive minds in football. The resume speaks for itself, what he did at LSU in 2019 and the Panthers' competitiveness with Teddy Bridgewater this season. But Joe Brady at 32 years old being a head coach, I don't know what that looks like. Matt Eberflus was somebody who the Cowboys were very unhappy to lose to Indianapolis. Matt Eberflus has done an awesome job with that defense. How Eberflus is going to do as a head coach, I have no idea. All I can do is just look at 
the resume, what they've actually done, and it just kind of project from there. Yeah, it's so tough, isn't it? I think particularly with the GM search as well. I mean, how do you piece together the GM, which they're going to say first, and then I think that then has a trickle down effect on who the on which you know, as you said, you, they, they may already have a good idea of, of who they want that to be number one and maybe a number two, so, uh, you know, plan B if you like. But to, yeah, to know how closely they're linked and then who they'll pick from that, I think yeah, I think very few of us will know until until it actually gets announced in January or maybe February. But um, certainly there's games to be played um, and uh, hopefully we can get another victory on Thursday on the Thanksgiving slate, the first of three games on Thursday. Mike, thank you very much for your time and thanks for joining us again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 